Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. <laughs> 2017 from Coolidge, Arizona. Pleased to have each of you tuned in today. And for those who are in class here, we're in the book of Acts, chapter 14. A few things uh, to review our lessons from last week. Remember that Acts, keep in your mind, this is an oversimplification, but keep in your mind that Acts presents the transition period between Pentecost and A.D. 70. In the book of Acts, we have most of the churches and most of the epistles being written. And and then uh, we have the book of Revelation, which brings to us the end of that transition period. Um, And after the book of Revelation, we have Peter writing his epistle to the remaining Jews. We know that from internal evidence because in Revelation chapter 2 it talks about uh, the, the uh, tribulation which, and the trials and tribulations which are about to take place. Peter addresses them as in the process of actually in place. So that would give us a clue that Revelation was written prior to 1 Peter. So remember that Acts presents the transition period between Pentecost and the fall and destruction of the temple. That's the transition period of how many years, approximately? Well, look who's here. (laughs) Oh, no, that's... uh, I'm I'm just sorry there. That's not good. That's not good. Glad to have you. Uh, What was your name? (laughs) Okay. Now, we, we, um, we, we ended last week, or in the process of last week's lesson, which was a brief lesson, we talked about some of the time passages that in this book of, uh, that the book of Acts represents these time frames, these, these time passages, and so many of them. We looked at Matthew, uh, several in Matthew, um, that all of these things were about to take place, But each of those things where it says they were about to take place had not yet taken place at Pentecost. They took place and were completed between Pentecost and the fall of Jerusalem. Once you get that clear in your mind, the New Testament takes on a very rational uh, piece of information for us. And so often using the term at hand, that we went through that quite a bit last week, didn't we? We that did. At hand. At hand. And, and um, yeah. Which is the meaning of most of those words have, all those verses we read last week have uh, that little phrase, mellow, yeah. Yeah. which is not translated accurately. It means uh, uh, about to take place. It's a closer position than soon or at hand. It's 
is right on the brink of. So it was right about all of these things. And, and we read most of those, I think, from the book of Matthew, these things that, that were about to take place. And we say, well, now that didn't quite take place at Pentecost. But the reason that um, Paul was still keeping the law when he wrote some of the, uh, when Luke wrote some of the acts about Paul's activities, keeping the law, it was because the Jews were still under the effect of the law during that transition period, even though the substance of it had been nailed to the cross at the cross, it became effective at Pentecost, but not practicable until the fall of Jerusalem. Yeah, is that kind of clear? Yes. That process. Um, and when once you understand that, then all of these little phrases in the epistles become so easy to define. You can't forget that. So the reaching out to the Gentiles. Reaching out to the Gentiles. Happened before 70 A.D. Seven, oh, yeah. So that process was in its infancy at yep. that time. It's but still established. That's right. And, and most of the churches are written to Gentile churches. I mean, most of the epistles are written to, you know, Galatia was a Gentile. Ephesus was a Gentile. Thessaloniki was a Gentile. Um, Colossae. Uh, but they all had Jews as well. But the, the bulk there were the Gentiles. So the Gentiles had to be built up, and, the, uh, and Paul, of course, is the key to them. While the Twelve remained primarily in Jerusalem, establishing the Jewish congregation, but there is no book to the Church of Jerusalem, no book written to them, only by inference as he writes to other books. So that's an important thing to keep in mind. Now... Um, that's right. They were coming from there because that was the apostolic ministry. And we call that 40-year transition period the, the establishment of the foundation of the church and the preparation for the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. It had to have a foundation to sit on in Revelation chapter 21. He's talking about the foundation that has been laid by the apostles, and then the, this, the foundation is prepared so that when the new Jerusalem comes down, it sets itself on that preformed foundation established by the apostles. Oh, you're getting it, you're getting it, you're getting it. That's fantastic. Now, that's pretty simple. Uh, when, when Matthew wrote his gospel that we read, I think, five or six different passages from last week, when he wrote his gospel account to the Jews, he used prophecies. His use of the prophecies, are you tuned? Keep, keep up now. Get your thinking cap on. I realize that's only a size one, but, you know, just do the best you can. Um, that his prophecies, he uses his prophecies or most of his prophecies in order to prove that Jesus was the, um, the long-awaited Messiah king. And look at what Paul says about that in 1 Thessalonians 5.20. That's the one I gave to you. 1 Thessalonians 5.20. Do whatever you can to despise 
prophecy. That's verse 21. I think you missed the word there. Did I get something wrong? Now you're stopping to think about what it says. A lot different than what I just read, right? Do not despise. Do not despise prophetic utterances. Do not lightly esteem prophecy. But prove all things. Examine carefully. Examine everything carefully. What's he talking about? He's not talking about examining the contents of this mic. He's talking about the subject in which he's speaking, and that's prophecy. Examine the prophecy carefully. Do not lightly esteem prophecy, but prove all things within the content of that context of that prophecy, and then and then disregard it. Hold fast to that which is good. And again, we have to redefine the word good. doesn't mean the opposite of naughty. It's the opposite of evil. Evil is not naughty either. Good. When, when God said, remember in the Garden of Eden? Remember, were you there? Any of you there? In the Garden of Eden, God, God made this wonderful grapefruit tree. It was grapefruit. Okay. He said, I'm going to have Dave take care of this grapefruit tree. And to this day, I've done the best I can with my, of my grapefruit tree. But he said, he looked at that. He looked at it. He said, wow, that is a good grapefruit tree. Now, that's where we begin to determine what it means to be good. What was the, the grapefruit tree is immoral. It doesn't have a will. It doesn't make choices. It was good in that it was doing what it was designed to do. It fulfilled its purpose. It fulfilled its purpose or was in the process of fulfilling its purpose. Now, if evil is the opposite of good, and we too often approach evil with the wrong connotations, evil then, being the opposite of good, if, if it is indeed an antonym, what does evil mean? It's not fulfilling its purpose. It is not doing and not living according to purpose. So people don't kill in the church. They don't steal, but they have no identifiable purpose. So they're evil. It needs to be cut down, chopped up, and burned. Cut down and thrown into the fire. You know, that's not a bad idea. Yeah. In I mean, case, that way at least it's doing something. It's making that, heat. That's or, right. <laughs> yeah. We need it now. It's cold. So you have to realize that when, 
It talks about evil. It's talking about activities that are not according to function, not according to purpose, not according to the, the, the design. A person who lives their life in perfect social acceptance but does not live it in keeping with their intended purpose is an evil human being. I know, I don't care whether you like that or not. I'm not here to be popular. But uh, good, then, hold fast to that which is according to the purpose of that prophecy. And a prophecy can't be good or evil in and of itself, but he's talking about what is the purpose of that prophecy? What is the function of it? What is it? What is this design? So, once we understand that every prophecy has a design and the prophecies that Matthew uses are principally to give us evidence that Jesus is the Messiah, the chosen one, and the fulfillment of those prophecies, the other prophecies of the Old Covenant are prophecies regarding the nation of Israel, of which Jesus was a part, and of their end, and the Bible never speaks anywhere of the end of time. It speaks of the end of the age. We're going to talk about that Thursday night. So do not leave, don't take prophecy lightly, but get a grasp of what its intent is, what its purpose is, and make sure that how you look at it is in keeping with its purpose and function. And then look at verse 22, abstain from every form of evil. And that is taken out, lifted out of the context. What is the context talking about? Prophecy. Prophecy. Abstain from every form of evil as it relates to the topic. The topic is prophecy. Every form of evil can find itself to render a prophecy non-functioning, not in keeping with purpose. And all of the purposes today that are projected about prophecy really are an application of that verse. We are to abstain from every aspect of understanding of prophecy that is not according to its design and purpose. And when we don't do that, that's a form of evil. Most of the churches today are practicing a form of evil in how they look at prophecy. Because when Jesus said, all of these things are going to be take place, all of these things, all of these things that he has just mentioned, and Matthew 24, all of these things, the fall of Jerusalem and all that stuff, is still is going to take place in your lifetime. And if it didn't, then we need to get up and walk out of here and go home and have a burrito. Because Jesus is not worth following if what he said is not true. And if he did not know accurately what his mission was, then we ought not honor him at all anyway. Let's just get up and go home. If he meant what he said, and what he said was what he meant, then if we project that outside of the context of his prophecy, then that is the exercise of a form of evil regarding that prophecy. Did I get that clear? 
You have a question. Um, is this pro is the prophecy that he's speaking of here to the church in Thessaloniki? Uh, is this regarding uh, the Messiah? Oh, you know, it doesn't tell us. He says, do not despise prophetic utterances, plural. Anything that is prophetic. And we don't know. He, do he doesn't give us that. But he tells it to the church as a great principle. See there, see the... Um, um, it really doesn't apply to us now. There's no prophecy to... That's right. Well, except we can... We can examine the prophecy and see how it's been fulfilled. Anything short of its own purpose is evil. That's right. There's only one right answer, one, and everything right. else is wrong. And the advantage that we have over them is that we can look at it historically now. Yes. And they could not look at it historically because there was no history. Why didn't they have a history? Well, Neil and I were at a, a Bible study here two weeks ago. And the lady asked the question, why, if what you're saying is true, why didn't the apostles give us a, uh, I mean, why don't we have a history in the Bible about the destruction of Jerusalem? My answer to her was, only the apostles were authorized to write, and they were already gone. There was no one left to write about the history of the fall of Jerusalem. It was recorded. Well, it's recorded. The prophecies were recorded, but the fulfillment yeah. couldn't be recorded. No, no, not in the word. word. I mean after. Oh, after. Yeah, well, we can go there and see it. Now now it's evident. You can go down. You can walk on the ground where it used to be, the temple and all. And it's written, and it's written by, you know, secular historians. But there's no, the, the apostles couldn't write about it because they were gone. In my understanding, they were raptured. If everybody were raptured, there had been nobody left. We wouldn't have this discussion. They were gone around chapter 19 or 20 in that yeah. time period. And so, you know, that doctrine of everyone raptured, where the Bible addresses it specifically to the apostle. And we gave you evidence in that. That's clear back in Revelation chapter, lesson number four. Out of 140, that's the one I remember. <laughs> because it is so contrary. But it's just uh, looking at the pronouns in, in Thessalonians. Well, the reason I ask, David, is because I'm curious as to what prophecy they could be uh, referring to, that they could be interested in, which would be relevant at the time of this writing for that group who were not Jews. Well, there they were Jews Gentiles. there, though. Pardon? There were Jews there. Okay. And, 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 of course, the prophecies that they were getting were about the ones that we're studying in Revelation about the, tri the, uh, the trial and tribulation period and the fall of Jerusalem and the end of the Mosaic Age. They were hearing that verbally. We see it having been written. They didn't have that. So they were getting, there were those who were gifted in prophecy preaching to these people what you and I have in writing, and he says, take them serious. They're my people. Even if they repeated the prophecy of Christ, correct? That's right, okay. even, even if they were there. Any, the statement is really clear. Do not despise prophetic utterances. So and, of course, 
Huh? Those are authorized prophecies. Those are authorized prophecies. That's right. But but then he gives them a caution. You still have to have an individual responsibility to examine carefully. Examine, examine everything. Or prove, put it to the test. Actively. Actively. Mm-hmm. Which is each one's responsibility. And it's in the present tense, which means we have to keep going, we have to keep on doing that with prophecy and not just take everybody's word for what it means or doesn't mean. These people had it tough. You and I can go back and we have it there as a constant that we can go back and study. But he says you're looking for the kelan, that which is good, that which has, what is its purpose? What is it trying? What is prophecy doing? Now, another thing we have to look at is two definitions of the word prophetes. Prophet, prophet, prophet simply means one who speaks for another. We tend to always look at it as something that has to do with the future. But this is just one who is speaking for another, and particularly those who are representing God's thinking. And that would have to do with the future, as well as all of the doctrines and instructions for the church. Yes, the, present, the very present. The very, that's right. And that would be all apostolic. Teaching. Anything apostolic. Yeah. From so, the mind of Christ. Whether, whether it was uh, uh, prose or poetry, yeah. whether it was future, present, to them, it was, God, it was those speaking in behalf of another. Some had been delegated by the apostles as prophets in the early church. There were, there were female prophets as well as male prophets. And if you'd have female prophets come into here in those days, you'd have an uproar. That shows you how far off base we are. God appointed some women to be prophets in the New Testament church. And if you deny that, you may as well deny baptism. It's just as, just as clear as the crystal. But that's what the foundation is built upon. The church. Well, the, the foundation of the church is built upon the apostles. Yeah. And they delegated others to do so that it could be have a broader and wider audience. So I like what Paul says here for us, folks, do, uh, regarding prophetic utterances. Um, he gives us a broad, a broad explanation of that. But he says the re- individual responsibility in the active voice, you have to examine everything. And then when you find that which is according to the purpose of that prophecy, hold fast to it. Don't let it go. And if you find something that threatens it, then you have to make some adjustments. Abstain from every form of an understanding that doesn't concur with prophetic purpose and design. Is that clear? All right. That kind of summarizes where we were last year and why I read all of these verses in Matthew that talk about these things were about to take place 
The word mellow is the Greek word. It's not translated accurately in all of those passages. About to take place, some began to take place, were initiated with the Pentecost, but the consummation of all of these things was not complete until the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. Now let's go to our text in chapter 14. We have some things that we need to look at here. Verse 1, it came to pass. In Iconium. They both went together into the synagogue of the Jews. Now why would they go to the synagogue after the fact of Pentecost? That's where the Jews were. Because that's where the Jews were. They went to where the people were. They, they wanted to reach. That's right. And and there they would have they would have an audience. Now, where does the idea of synagogue come from? Real quick. No 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 de- no in depth. I don't want a two hour discussion here. From the period of the Maccabean period. That's where the Maccabean period in between Malachi and Matthew, the Maccabean brothers. I think the five brothers, uh, they formed in order to maintain the uh, the Jewish thinking about the tabernacles and the temple in the in the uh, isolated areas, the geographically isolated areas. They came in to preserve the teaching of the Jews by establishing synagogues that were replicas of the tabernacle throughout all of the land which was that time known as the Roman Empire. So that's why we talk, that's where we, that's where we find, and you can read about that in the Maccabeans. Um, they're not a part of our text, they don't need to be, but they're great history. And uh, they give you um, this background. I'm a little bit rusty on it now. That was 65 years ago I read that. So they entered the synagogue because that was the place that each geographic area had established to, to keep the Jews faithful to the Messianic prophecies. Now that's what it was for. You don't buy that? Jesus said the law was added to the promise to do what? To to bring in the, and I'm paraphrasing, to bring in the Messiah. So these synagogues were there to perpetuate the purpose of the promise of the law of the Jewish people, that through them the Messiah King would come. That's why they could not let die Judaism. Had to keep it preserved. That was the motive behind the synagogue. Now, did God 
what would have happened had these brothers decided not to do that? We don't know. It's just like, this is a candle, right? Can you see it burning? It's burning. This is a candle, a big candle, big fat candle. But it's burning at the rate of one inch per hour. Can you see that? It's just going down, 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 down. So my question is, how long has this candle been burning? There's no answer to that question. You can't answer it. So there are some things here. You know, what would have happened had the Maccabeans not stepped up to the plate and established this synagogue? What would have happened to Judaism? We don't know. At least I don't know. There may be some who do. There may be some hints. And I'd like to know what those are. But I, but I don't know. So there's some things you can't answer. But the result is they, that's what they did. And it did preserve and keep intact Judaism until the Christ came. And that was their intent, that was their function, even though a lot of things that they did were out of order. And then you have the rise of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. See, partyism came out of the synagogues. As all that that's what happens when you start something man made. But through what was man-made, God fulfilled his purpose. See that? That ought to put chills in your spine. Yeah. So, back to our text. (laughs) You know, everything is so rich that they both went together into the synagogue of the Jews and so spake. It means that they had a process of speaking. They They were able to persuade people with their argumentation. Not negative, not hostile, but they had they had a process of speaking that persuaded people. And behind them there was soft organ music. Yeah. That was free. So he spake that a great multitude, both of the Jews and also of the Greeks. Believed. When we get done with the next verse, which is probably as far as we'll get today, don't forget that word, both of the Jews and the Greeks believed. I'm going to attempt to provide you with a definition of that word. Verse 2. So who do we have involved here? What two guys? Jews and Greeks. Oh, of groups. We have we have the Jews and the Greeks, and we have who? What two guys? Paul and Barnabas. We are in Iconium now because they had just left and been driven out of Antioch, and they had a lot of believers there, but there were enough to drive them out of town. And they came to Antioch. They weren't quitting. They just had to leave location. They had to go to a new geographic location. The animosity against them was too great. So they moved on. They moved on to Iconium. They both went together. You know, there again, you have a team of Paul and Barnabas. 
that had opposite personalities, but what tied them together, they had common goals. Isn't that precious? Yeah. Opposite personalities. Barnabas is the persuade. He he was the encourager. He was the one that just patted everybody on the back. You know, he was the hugger of the two. And Paul was the articulate one. You'll find that later in this in this chapter, that they they ascribed one name to Paul and one name to Barnabas, and they described the two diverse personalities of these two guys. Opposite personalities. What happens when a church is filled with people that are all alike? I'd have never seen one, but, you know, you probably won't. But people are always different. And the church, is, the church ought to be in the habit of helping each person expand on what they are and their personality, not try to get it like everybody else's. And that happened with Paul, because in his later writings, he became more of an encourager and even wrote about it. He, he mellowed with age. And you know, anything that mellows is just next to getting rotten. <laughs> he almost rotted away in prison. No, I was being facetious there. But that's right. So the unbelieving Jews now, the unbelieving Jews, as opposed to those who believe, they stirred up the Gentiles, you know, pitting one group against another. And that is so like groups, family groups, ethnic groups, Political groups, um, levels of, of of education. You know, you don't find city managers having lunch with the janitor. They'll have lunch with the next city manager, but not with their janitor. People... Um, Wage, people who make so much a year tend to group with people who make about the same a year. Um, in the church, that ought never be existent. It should never be there. It should never be based on family ties, domestic ties. That doesn't have any. We don't diminish the family ties at all. But that should never be the cause nor the source of oneness in the church. Because everybody's mother, because they are your mother, is going to be saved for that fact. Or daddy, or child. We kind of become universalist. Universal salvation when it comes to the members of our family. And that just isn't the way it is. Everyone has to be individually responsible. So the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, stirred them up intentionally, and they made their minds evil, affected against the brethren. 
The unbelieving there is really should be that what does it say in your and who disbelieves? Well, really that word is, should not be unbelieving because it's the word obeying. It should be the unobedient, the disobedient. Mm -hmm. It's a different word. They were convinced of a new purpose. So you see the King James has the word disobedient, yeah. and that's, that's the word should be. And um, if you look at the word, um, that word, and then look at the word belief uh, in, the, pre, in, in that, um, the last word of verse chapter 1, um, it's, it's, a different, um, it's a different word. Right there. Yeah. Right there. <clears throat> you see, that's a diff- whole different word. Now, that gives us an idea then of there's two things I want to do, and we've only got a few minutes to do it in. One is that this word in chapter 3, they were disobedient. They had unbelief. Unbelief is equal to disobedience. They were unbelieving, which means that they were disobedient. They restricted their belief to justify their disobedience. What this word means is they were not willing to be persuaded to obey. So because they did not want nor desire to be obedient, They resisted belief. So that tells us what they mean in verse 1. When they believed, it means they were willing to obey. You see that correlation? In verse 1, also of the Greeks, the Jews and the Greeks, they believed, meaning that they were willing to be obedient is built into the word. Here in verse 2, the word is disbelief or disobedience, meaning that they were not willing to be persuaded to obey, not willing to be persuaded, so in, in a, to enable them to feel self-justified in not obeying the message, they resisted, the impetus for obedience, and that's belief. They resisted belief. Why? So they didn't have to obey. There you get an idea. You can't be a believer if you're not willing to obey what it is you believe. And they were not wanting to believe because they realized that in their belief, they would have to obey, and they didn't want to do that. I wonder how many of us fit into that category. Any questions on that? You see, the Jews, what Paul and Barnabas had spoken, were the exact words that gave the Jews every reason to believe. They were willingly... They they would not accept it because they didn't want to change. They didn't want, which makes them, and then they went out and misery loves company. They tried to get the Gentiles to be 
they're it's more on their side to justify yeah. their not being willing to obey. And to do that, they had to create disbelief. We can't believe thee. Whatever it does to keep people from believing, that's what we're going to do. Like in Antioch, they were unwilling or, what was it, uh, unfit for eternal life. That's right. By their own choice. By their own choice. This is strictly their choice. But they knew the truth, but they resisted it. So true. Well, I got one more thing. Have we got time? Let's see what we can do in verse 2. There's the word mind. If we didn't have, if we weren't on talk show, why I would draw this on the board, but, you know, most people can't see it. Uh, the word here for mind is the word um, sukos, psyche. Um, has to do with the word mind, but in this case, there, there are seven different Greek words that are all translated mind. This is the word, this is the common word, and it means animal breath. If you're living, you breathe, right? It is used as a mind. Why? Because the mind is, is one of the manifestations of life. Thinking is the visibility of life. Breath is the evidence of life. When you if you if you get an automobile accident and they come to you in the emergency squad car, and they text, oh he's not breathing. Well, then they got a problem, right? What are they going to try to do first? Resuscitate. They're going to try to resuscitate you. Yeah, they're going to try to resuscitate you. You have got to get to breathing. If you can't breathe, so breathing is the evidence of life, animal life, physical life whether it's a dog or a cat or a human being. And and it's used of the mind that is translated here from that word, one of the seven words for mind. This word is used and translated mind in this case because it was the visibility of life. Thinking is the visibility of life. Thinking is the visibility of life. It's it's what is another manifestation of life is that people think. Now, we're taught not to think today. We are simply recipients of brainwashing to the news, television, all of our media, all of the tectonic equipment. Is, is, we're, we're just reacting to action. That's not thinking. Now, Breath, here, this word literally simply means breath. It's the breath that is the evidence of life. Now I'm going to throw the kink into it. Also, there's a word that's translated breath that we're all familiar with, and that's the word pneumatos. They are both translated breath. The first one is translated mind, like it is here. Their thinking. Mind represents the thinking or some manifestation of life, and that's where the word mind here comes from, that word. But the literal word is breath. If you want to, you can, and you can uh, look up the dictionary. You see, breath. 
by spirit. But that's not true. It should not be spirit. It's, it's just animal breath. So what's the difference then between the breath that is the evidence of life and the breath that comes from the word pneumatos, which we translate spirit? One is voluntary and the other is involuntary. Oh, good. I hadn't thought of that. Good point. So one is the evidence of life that you, that you have to have. The other is, is the evidence of what you are. See, pneumatos is what you are. It's what your, that life, that breath of life, the animal breath of life, what it contains is pneumatos, spirit. That's what, that's what that life is. That's what that life is about. So in one case, here they use the word that means that the evidence of life is that um, they had that evidence of life and it's translated mind as a manifestation of animal life. They had that. But it doesn't, but the word spirit is also translated the same way, but it has a whole different meaning in that it's applicable to what that breath contains. Who you are. Got to close. Folks, we pray. Father, our commitment is to grasp the reality of these issues that they will have an impact upon our lives and give us peace. In Jesus' name, amen.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.